It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being controlled. He's not ready. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save our house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There are certain key things that we want from India, and there are certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme today, where we're going to be talking about UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who has arrived now in Israel after President Biden's visit to the country. That did not seem to sort of cool the rising tensions in the region. Speaking on the flight back to the US, President Biden talked about having secured agreements from Egypt and Israel to allow in some humanitarian aid into the Palestinian territory at 20 trucks with one major condition though from the Israeli side that the aid should not benefit Hamas which is obviously an immensely difficult task and actually the aid has not arrived and the Rafah crossing has has not so far opened. Yeah really almost impossible if you can't uh, protect civilians without them being used as human shields how are you going to get aid to them? Here's Rishi Sunak. Very pleased to be able to be here it's an important time it's important for me to be able to express my solidarity with the Israeli people following what was a horrific terrorist attack. Productive meetings ahead of us today. I'm looking forward to seeing the Prime Minister and President. There's lots of work for us to do. So the Prime Minister there uh, speaking on his arrival into Israel. So yes, there is a concern about the deepening humanitarian crisis in Gaza, but obviously also the enormous risk of the conflict escalating and um, involving um, you know, different actors, Hamas uh, and Hezbollah, both backed by Iran, at least in terms of weaponry and uh, technology and, and capacity. So that is uh, one significant risk. And so that is one why you have seen this this procession of so many um, Western leaders to try to sort of dampen down that possibility. Yeah, Biden on Wednesday, also German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on Tuesday and now Rishi Sunak. Well, you, Caroline, were speaking to Alan Mendoza, the executive director at the Henry Jackson Society, the transatlantic think tank, and you asked him uh, what Sunak's approach will be, how he could kind of build on what Joe Biden's already done. He's been very consistent, as to be fair, have have all the major political party leaders uh, 
in the UK about Israel's right to to action in response to what happened. I don't think he'll deviate from that line. I think the regional message will be, look, you've got to recognize what's happened in Israel is, is hideous. And the Israelis are going to react uh, accordingly. We're going to do our best to obviously maintain those laws of war that we uh, that we believe in. Um, and I think there may be some talk about what neighboring countries can do on the humanitarian side. And also, I suspect there will be after what we saw with the with the hospital situation, when a lot of misinformation was was uh, taken up by neighboring countries without any verification. I think there'll be a message to look, call this because it's you know if you if you push forward disinformation, it could lead to massive consequences both in the region and beyond. And I think that message will be heard loud and clear on uh, Rishi Sunak's tour as well. Mm, so that was Alan Mendoza, the executive director at the Henry Jackson's uh, Society, speaking to us earlier, speaking to me earlier on, on Bloomberg Radio. Look, I think it's also immensely important, you know, whilst there are, you know, these sort of calls for restraint, there is obviously um, still a firmness about Israel's desire to respond to this terrorist attack. And I think it's also worth uh, you listening to the uh, former ambassador to the United States, the former Israeli ambassador, talking about how he actually sees Biden's trip, sending um, a message not to escalate the war beyond Gaza. But have a listen to what he has to say. Oh, I think uh, people may have understood that, uh, as I understood, that it was a reference not to get involved in uh, sort of a quagmire in Gaza. If you're going to go in there and you're going to uproot uh, Hamas, then get it done and get the hell out of there. Michael Oren there, the uh, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Um, So there is concern about other countries being drawn into this and yet this enormous diplomatic effort to try to deal with it. I think it's also worth um, thinking about what it means here in the UK. You know, seven British nationals are now known to have been killed in that attack on the 7th of October. So there are direct ramifications here in the UK. Yeah, there's been this rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the UK. The Met Police in London said last week that reports of anti-Semitic incidents have increased sevenfold and those of Islamophobia have doubled. And then in a sign of the concern, King Charles, the King, has commented on religious tolerance in a speech he made. He didn't, though, mention the Middle East conflict directly. To rededicate my life to protecting the space for faith itself within our shores. Such understanding, both at home and overseas, is never more vital than at times of international turmoil and heartbreaking loss of life. So there, King Charles. Mm. I didn't know this. But in the last census, um, in terms of populations here in the UK, 271,000 people identified as Jews in the last UK census, 3.9 million identified as Muslims in England and Wales. I thought that was an interesting number that I hadn't that I hadn't known. I think that it is going to be very, very difficult. The UK is very has aligned itself totally um, with the US very, very closely. But what more can the UK Prime Minister get in this situation than President Biden did? We think that he may well visit other capitals in the region, but what sort of extra diplomacy could he get out of the situation that that Joe Biden did not? That sort of is still quite open. Well, his Foreign Secretary James Cleverly is also setting off on a tour of the Middle East. So he's starting in Egypt uh, today uh, and then he's 
going to try and press the Egyptians to open that Rafa border crossing from Gaza to allow foreign nationals to leave. So working mm. together uh, on this diplomatic effort as the conflict continues. Yeah, no, and that's the same sort of strategy that we see from Germany of sending multiple ministers. The German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, is going to visit Jordan, Israel and Lebanon also over the next couple of days. The German defence minister also made a, a surprise visit to Lebanon and this after, of course, um, Olaf Scholz visited. So, yes, you can kind of see those diplomatic efforts. Um, perhaps that delays. I mean, on the one hand, maybe it delays whatever the sort of ground incursion into Gaza that we're expecting from Israel is. Does it change it? That seems also to be uh, unknown. Joining us now is our news director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, Ros Matheson. Ros, good to have you on the programme. What do you think, what is the current assessment of risk of Iran entering this war? Obviously, Iran backs Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah and Lebanon, we know. What is the risk of this now becoming a hot war with them involved? Well, certainly the level of diplomacy that we're seeing in the region, the frenzy of officials from Germany, the UK, the US and and others going into the region shows the level of concern that it could become a hot war uh, pulling in Iran, uh, either via Hamas in Gaza, as you say, or Hezbollah in in the north, in Lebanon. (laughs) And so that's got to be a, a high level of concern. We're seeing the rhetoric from Iran saying they're watching things closely, they are concerned and they feel that they may need to act. Whether they do is another question entirely. Some of that may depend on whether at some point we do get that ground war in Gaza by Israel and how wide a ground war that is. Does it become a more targeted ground war than we thought initially? Is it a full-scale invasion? Uh, Does Israel say in that moment it can take advantage of Israel's occupation in Gaza to, to strike from the north via Hezbollah? So there, there is a real concern that it's going to escalate. And if Hezbollah gets involved, does the US end up getting involved? Um, and that has to be the ultimate concern of all. But there are also reasons for Iran to, pardon the phrase, hold fire on that and Hezbollah as well. There, there are reasons that they would not want to get drawn into this necessarily. And so it's not a given, but certainly it, it's very much a high concern right now. Has the conflict much changed the relations in the Middle East between the countries themselves, not just uh, with you know, the European leaders that are trying to have influence in the region, but I'm talking relations between, for example, Saudi, Qatar, Jordan, Lebanon, Iran? We're certainly seeing the Arab states seemingly working in concert at the moment. Um, And they all face similar challenges in this. They've got people in their countries who are very angry about what they see um, as the treatment of people inside Gaza. Um, They're concerned about that also. But at the same time, these leaders of some of these states, they really have shown a desire to want to engage Israel in some fashion to move very carefully, perhaps towards normalization of ties, particularly between Saudi Arabia and Israel, because they all see the upside really in the end of of sort of greater connectivity economically and with trade. And so they're facing the balancing act uh, themselves uh, in a way that Israel faces its own balancing act in all of this. Um, But we do know there's a lot of conversation going on between these uh, Arab states, but also with countries like Turkey, uh, very involved also in commenting, and a lot of back-channeling going on with Iran. 
uh, and the, the question is, like, is there back-channeling going on, not just between the US and Iran, uh, but, it, but from others, including Qatar? Uh, we know that the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran is particularly fraught and historically fraught, so you can't imagine there's a lot of conversation going on there. Uh, but certainly the Arab world um, faces complex uh, challenges in this moment, not just Israel. Yeah, indeed. Um, I also wonder, though, you know, the conflict between um, Israel and and Gaza and pa- and the Palestinians. The, the, this issue has gone on and has seen so many skirmishes and smaller scale conflicts that perhaps there's been a level of fatigue. This point, though, and the seventh of October does seem to have changed things very decisively. I wonder whether you think that this is the result of, you know, as some commentators have said, the fact that we're no longer in a US-led world order, perhaps, uh, that we're in a much more multipolar world where Iran and Russia and China have very big spheres of influence. Is that is that also a factor of why this is reverberating around the world in the way that it is? Well, it does reflect some of those broader shifts, as you say, and we've seen that um, happening for quite some years now and perhaps accelerated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that conflict has really thrown up some of those changes that we're seeing in sort of spheres of influence around the world, hardening of these groups um, and and also the rise of some of these middling powers, middle powers, um, around countries like China, for example, and pulling away from the US. So you're seeing these different kinds of power blocks form. And certainly in recent years, we've seen the rise of much more uh, powerful influence from states in the Middle East themselves, the roles they've been playing as mediators uh, when it comes to, to Russia and Ukraine navigating the release of prisoners, uh, you know, grain deals and so on. And so certainly very much sort of Middle Eastern states getting much more assertive on the global stage. And so that all feeds into what we're seeing now. And so, you know, what you've got is countries like Russia, China, perhaps looking at this saying, well, how can we maximise this for our own influence, really, um, and act in our own self-interest in this moment? Um, and the US is pressuring Russia and China to, to lean on Iran, of course, to avoid a broader conflict. But China and Russia are going to act in what they think is their own interest in this situation. Um, and that does reflect that sort of much more fragmented world that we're in. Um, where certainly the, the power doesn't all lie with the US. Ross, just zooming in on Israel, we've been talking about it as a unified actor, but just earlier this year there were these mass protests against Netanyahu's rule. So how should we be thinking about the divisions within the country? Well, certainly there's been nothing but unity really in Israel in the past few weeks since the attack by Hamas on October 7. Uh, all of those fractures that we'd seen for months and months. And Israeli politics has been complicated for years, right? I mean, often very short-term cycles of government are one after the other, frequent elections. That all vaporized um, with the with the attack on October 7 and, and nothing but unity. And you can see that in the continued sort of signs from Israel that no matter what's happening with this diplomatic frenzy, they still intend to have some kind of proper big response uh, against Hamas in Gaza. They're not deterred 
by the caution they're getting from other countries. They feel they, they need to respond. The people of Israel want them to respond. That said, uh, there, were, there were months and months of protests against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's government, as you say, about his plan to roll back some of the power of the courts. Those fractures are away for now, but they're still there. And there's also the big questions over the intelligence value that allowed the Hamas attack to happen for all its sort of fame and infamy, the, the Israeli intelligence structure failed in that moment. And at some point down the track, you can see those questions coming back. How could this have happened to begin with? Um, and right now, it, it's all unity. But um, in, in months from now, do you see some of those things start to surface again? Mm. Just lastly, then, in, in terms of a, a sort of path forwards, um, the effort to if not reach a two-state solution, at least to normalise relations between, let's say, Israel and Saudi Arabia. How deep do you think that effort was and where does that stand now as we sort of, you know, look into this um, really terrible prospect of, of more fighting? It did seem to be a really serious effort um, and it was very delicate and it had been going very carefully for quite some time. But it did seem that both Israel and Saudi Arabia saw the upsides in moving towards a normalization, uh, encouraged, of course, by the US and other Arab states in the region too. The idea that if you connect everybody together economically through trade and investment, that you build that kind of economic bulwark in a way against future political strife or geopolitical strife in the region. And there was a real sort of recognition of that. It was proceeding very carefully. Obviously, now that's off the table. Um, there's no way those talks can happen in this environment. And if we're talking about a ground war that could go for months or longer, then mm. certainly it's on ice for now. But in the longer term, you can imagine there is still that intent to at least keep the lines of communication open. And in terms of the diaspora, in terms of Jewish people around the world in other countries and, and, and Muslim people in other um, countries around the world, as they look at this conflict, that is now, you know, it's not just a war, it is also an information war. It's being shared on, you know, social media platforms are going to be hugely important, are hugely important in terms of disseminating information. Do you think that this is also, is it going to spark unrest you know we've have seen a lot of protests in other countries but is it how big is that worry about what it does to um you know relations in other countries between populations you know, how difficult is that challenge we're seeing high levels of concern from leaders about that in different places including europe including here in the uk um and elsewhere, there are significant diaspora, not just Jewish populations in these countries, but also Muslim populations in these countries. And you're seeing high levels of concern in both those camps, in both those populations, about a rise in anti-Semitic behaviour, perhaps. We're seeing evidence of that. We're also seeing evidence that some Muslim people are being targeted um, in this. And that's just not protests that are going on for either side, but actually sort of stuff that's being posted up on street signs, people being sort of targeted on the street and so on. And the real risk that that sort of deepens um, divides in, in a place like Europe, which of course has a sensitive history to some of these issues. You're also seeing some politicians make use of it to start to talk about the risk of a migration crisis into Europe again, which is just sort of self-serving politicking at home. 
but certainly, you know, a concern about how this might seep into broader society, um, into cultural and religious differences, and the possibility it shows up in, in some, frankly, sort of unseemly behaviour against either of these populations. Okay, Ros Matheson, unfortunately, it seems a theme that we'll be returning to again and again in future weeks. Thank you for being with us, our news director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, Ros Matheson. Well, if you thought that we were gloomy here at Bloomberg, if you thought we were all about the doom, we're not. We can bring you a positive Brexit news klaxon. We bring you both sides of it when things work well after Brexit and when they go a bit wrong. Look, London has recaptured its crown as Europe's largest stock exchange by market value. Positive Brexit news klaxon. Let's sound it off now. Is there much to celebrate, though? For analysis, we're joined by our stock reporter Joe Easton whose eagle eyes spotted this trend Joe just paint us a picture why is London back in the lead so London is firstly benefiting from the high oil price which clearly isn't really a UK issue but we do have a couple of big oil companies as you know Shell and BP um, with oil rallying as it has done recently they are clearly making a lot more money so that has been an element to it the other thing is the easing inflation in the UK is a positive because it means the Bank of England as you know will potentially not hike rates as aggressively as they were before or even at all depending who you ask um, so the pound has declined and companies that make money in other currencies therefore make more more money Can I want to I just want to pull <laughs> a bucket of cold water then onto Lizzie yeah. Burton's Brexit klaxon. How can we balance? Yeah, how can this possibly be good news? Joe, if you're yeah, I know. Pounds, Scores on the I doors. Know. It's 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 it does look good on the headlines in terms of the UK, but a lot of it, you know, the UK market is really international, so it's it's kind of it does make a nice British um, Great Britain headline, but. Um, a lot of it is international and also in France the, the luxury goods companies like Louis Vuitton you know they're not selling as many fancy handbags and that kind of thing so those stocks have declined so comparatively the London market is doing better but actually there is an element of it being the French not doing so well and maybe to use the European term a bit of schadenfreude uh, is that the way you say it? schadenfreude yeah, is it? I don't, don't know my German's awful schadenfreude yeah. that's it that's it schoolgirl German I'm so so we're like riding on the wave of other people's misery, basically. Can politicians take credit? You know, they've been going on and on about how they're changing the UK's investment narrative. We've had all these reforms. Is that part of what's happened here? Well, I think that the so stock markets are interesting because they've always been a very patriotic kind of area. And it's, it's kind of it's un, unusual in a way because... Um, it ties into people's, as I say, um, being their patriotic n nature. I think the UK has lost out on a couple of big IPOs recently. Obviously, Arm went to New York and a couple of other companies, like the building company, for example, CRH, they left um, one of their listings. They, they, they sort of ditched that. Well... And the, the other issue, though, with the stock market is just looking at the cold, hard facts. The UK's market is is much smaller than it was pre-Brexit. It's been in decline in terms of overall market cap. Um, and that is surely the bigger, more significant problem for Britain. It is a problem. Um, I would, would note that the UK market, 
this the number that we're looking at is on primary listings, mm. which is something that's important because it's where companies think their main listing should be. But there are a lot of companies that have secondary listings. It sounds very technical and boring, but essentially companies still come to the UK mm. to raise money. We recently had a French company, Utilsat, raise billions of pounds on the London Stock Exchange, but it doesn't get the headlines because it's not their main listing. And if you ask the LSC, they will cite that number and say that actually London is much, much bigger than Paris, taking into account the whole stock market. So we're only looking at one number. Mm. Um, I don't think it's entirely reflective of the UK market, but as you say, it has been in decline. Yeah, and also the numbers that you're looking at, um, they don't include things like ETF exchange traded funds and kind of the sort of more modern bits of the market that exist now that are also perhaps more, maybe more favourable to London. No, I'm not going to name who, but I was just talking to a company that was saying it's pretty good to be seen as cheap if you're London listed, but you've got loads of business elsewhere in growth markets for your business. And actually, that's something that US investors are getting really excited about. So there are many actually happy members of the FTSE at the moment. Joe, the other thing that we haven't actually talked about is is what's going on. On the one hand, it's great for these global international companies that are listed on the FTSE 100 that seem to be doing quite well. But if you look at the domestic stocks, they're also finding it quite difficult because they're more tied to the UK consumer. So kind of give us more of a picture of actually how UK domestic businesses are faring in terms of the market. Is that an area that, you know, politicians could could look at to improve? Yeah, so the... As you say, the the numbers that we've been looking at are very much internationally tied, but the outlook for domestic UK companies is pretty weak. Mm. And we've already seen, even into the early days of this, another earnings season that we're happy to um, grapple with, we're already seeing some companies reporting softness, particularly if you look at companies like construction and DIY companies like B&Q, they're quite a good read on what consumers are doing. And at the moment, they are reporting weakness in their numbers. And we could then see that potentially in other consumer stocks on the high street. And potentially that might be something that causes the domestic stocks to come back down. And really, you know, we might end up just being saved by the oil price in terms of the overall market. The other thing that this brings to mind is, and I know that this is, you know, an issue that came up in Brexit that will be in, in the UK media, no doubt. You know, London versus Paris, it's always that rivalry between our closest neighbours. But but for me, economically, it makes me think about a kind of more planned economy. France does have a more social democratic, more interventionist way of doing business. Um, and I sort of wonder how you think about that when it comes to the UK. You know, the UK has been much more about deregulation. And so is there... Is there a difference, a comparison that we can make there between London and Paris? Yeah, I mean, we always want to get one over the French. I mean, that <laughs> goes without saying. Um, but I think that the, I, the, the listening to what the LSE is saying mm. um, and the politicians, they do seem quite open to potentially relaxing some rules. There are some rules that make London less, compar- less competitive on things like um, the floated rule, how much of the company has to be listed, even in terms of very strict regulations on which companies can list and how much of an insight into the company they have to give before they get that listing. So I think they could potentially relax some of those things and give them more of a competitive edge. All right, Joe Easton, our stocks reporter, thank you for being with us in the studio. 
bit of different languages there for you on the UK politics podcast today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Bit of Europe thrown in there for you too. Uh, that's it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Verdon. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.